0: Hi everyone, welcome to Office Hours. If you oh, if you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about uh, digital media production. Second hour is usually uh, something we want to spend a little bit more time on. We're excited to have Matthew Semigula Sim- uh, uh, here from Al- Altion.io. This is a funny thing we we uh, uh, Bill talked about Altion. And then I was like, I don't know what that is. And then, and then they saw that we had talked about them and they said, well, would you like to talk more? I was like, yeah, sure, that'd be great. So they're on. They're going to be here for the second hour. I'm really excited to learn more about what they do. Um, so, uh, and Bill's going to actually run that second hour while, while, um, while we all learn there. Um, so, so stay tuned for that. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Dave, what do we have?
1: Our first one is
2: from Michael Marsh and San Anselmo. Given the recent advances in AI, how does CAPTCHA still work? Can't AI identify bicycles and check I am not a robot?
3: I go, Jonas. Here's the funny thing. AI can, because we all are helping with the data set. If you look at it, um, a lot of the chapter is used to train AI. Um, So like it's obvious
4: to us. Okay. Have a wonderful day. Drive safe and I'll see you at one o'clock. Okay.
0: You're not muted. You're not muted, Chris. Chris. Um,
3: Well, um, you are now. And the other thing is with JetGPT4, an interesting thing that they have, there's this um, compliance group that uh, does tests with uh, AI. And they did this little experiment where JetGPT should explain its reasoning while responding to everything. And they gave it the task to solve a chapter. And what it did is it went to Fiverr and found someone to solve the chapter for it. But then uh, the person jokingly asked the AI, are you a robot? Because you can't solve these, and it made up a story about uh, being blind or vision impaired and needing to help get help solving the chapter that way. Um, yeah, it is really interesting. What was really interesting is it explained like it understood that if it says it's a robot, it is not like that's the right thing to say, but it decided it's the better thing to say. No, I'm not a robot. So yeah, they can solve it. I- I- yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of things
0: <laughs> that, that we think that we were, we were trying to, uh, you know, we th- didn't think robots could do. I think a, a lot of what we're seeing right now is that ChatGPT is just changing the way we think about how we interact with um, computers. I think a lot of people are afraid of that, but I think there's going to be a lot of really interesting opportunities. Let's jump into the next question.
1: The next question is from
2: Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. While streaming to LinkedIn through the API yesterday, LinkedIn started a new event. Rather, associate the live stream with the pre-configured event chosen with the API. Any idea why this might have happened? We used Restream.io with the LinkedIn API.
0: The you know, we haven't used, a lot of us haven't used LinkedIn that much for the live streaming because it's, I, I know when it first came out, it wasn't something you could put, you could connect to a brand. So a lot of us got excited about it. And then we're like, oh, we got to stream to our own, um, uh, our own, you know, uh, page. And so that, that kind of made it harder for us. So a lot of us haven't played with it as much. Go ahead, Jonas.
3: Yeah, one interesting thing with uh, LinkedIn is there is, I think, a two hour ish window that you get an RTMP key for your event. So, one interesting problem that we run into is you can't actually schedule an event too far in advance because the RTMP ingest point will have changed till you start your event. And back when we started using it, there wasn't a way to change it. So, that might have been one of the things that you run into that. It just couldn't access the RTMP URL for that event again and then created a new one. Um, We always use uh, it directly into LinkedIn. You should be fairly certain to uh, get in there now. But yeah, that's one of the issues we found with LinkedIn. Next question.
2: Roscoe Jones is up next from Madison, Indiana. Roscoe says, "From Mac Resolve, I gave a student some .mov files on a flash drive, but they have a PC and said they were unable to access them from the flash drive or Dropbox. I tried formatting the flash drive
3: to XFAT. What would you recommend to fix the issue?" Good, Jonas. I'm thinking it probably is an issue with the underlying file and not the file system. So um, saying that it's an .mov file means like. That's a wrapper, but we don't know the codec and especially with Resolve, if you have a Mac version, it could be ProRes in a, a MOV wrapper, which Resolve on the PC doesn't support. So I'm guessing that this student might mean I can't open it as in, if you drag the file into Resolve, it just doesn't display it, it doesn't even import it. And then there's also the possibility if it's an H.265 10-bit file, um, the free version of Resolve doesn't support it, while the studio version, the paid one, does. So that's one of the things um, where we have seen differences, for example, from a GH5, the 10-bit files can only be read by the pro version of uh, Resolve, not by the free version. So that are the two things I would check. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, uh, he covered
1: the codec pro, uh, codec issues pretty well. But if you put the thumb drive in and it says, "Do you want to format this?" Uh, then it can't read the uh, disk, the formatting on the drive itself, which means that it, it may be a PC that's older than ten years or so, which doesn't know about exFAT. If you can format it FAT thirty-two, that's the universally exchangeable format because Macs and PCs all read FAT thirty-two, and older PCs back you know, 10 or 15 years ago will read FAT32, so that might be the way, but you only have you can only use 2 gigabytes of storage, even if it's a 16 gigabyte uh, thumb drive so <clears throat> be careful on, you, know, you can't read any, have any files larger than 2 gigabytes on FAT32 the other possibility is to format it in TFS which Macs can read but can't write but most PCs can read in TFS on the last 10 years or so, so Try reformatting the thumb drive to either one of those, either FAT32 or NTFS, and see if they can read it. If they can't see any of the files at all, if they don't show up as MOV files, they just can't open them. But most modern PCs can open MOV files, but they don't necessarily have the ProRes codecs. Go ahead, Sky.
5: I've, at once upon a time, changed the .MOV to .MP4. And potentially that could allow your, your Windows machine to go, oh, I know how to read those. But that's, that's an option there too. Next question.
2: Next question comes to us from Noah Sargent in Fullerton, California. I'm searching for a 27 inch monitor that is thin. I'm looking to add it to a low profile drawer slide so that the monitor folds out. Aiming for one inch thick or less, any suggestions?
0: Yeah, some of the thinnest ones that I've seen are made by ASUS and LG, so you can look at those. The problem is, is that most of the thin ones will not have a visa mount, and uh, I don't buy, I don't buy a lot of monitors without visa mounts. <laughs> so, so the visa mount is a hundred millimeter visa mount on the back. To me, is kind of one of the things that a monitor has to have, and that's mostly because I attach my monitors to everything. I don't even know where the most of the legs are for most of my monitors. Uh, I just don't even think about using them. So uh, Visa mount, uh, C13 and an HDMI are kind of my minimum requirements. And because of that, the, the uh, monitors get a little thicker. So I know that you're trying to fit them into a 1U, you may have to go to a 2U. I do know that the 27 inch Dells would fit into a into 2U slot instead of a 1U slot. Next
2: question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. With the U.S. political winds rapidly turning
0: against TikTok,
2: what short-form video content platform will probably take its place if TikTok
3: ends up banned? Go ahead, Jonas. I think YouTube Shorts has a pretty strong case right now, especially with the revenue share model. I think they have some uh, better communication to do in, like, explaining how the revenue share model works. But I think YouTube positions themselves great for, like, a need for a new uh, short form platform. And I think they're on par with almost on par with TikTok. Now, the one thing that TikTok has that YouTube isn't there yet is like the whole editing and all the teens knowing how to use it and all the little TikTok magic tricks. They don't have those yet. Yeah. It- from the TikTokers
0: that we've worked with in the past, they there's a certain level where they you know they they are using the native app until it seems like until they get to about a million users and then they move over to other apps. <laughs> so and and so uh, so they they start using a variety of different apps um, once they get into there because now to them it means more. So but a lot of people do use the native app at the beginning. I do think that YouTube is probably the the heir apparent if TikTok gets closed down. I think that the other thing that they're really missing is the viral nature of sharing. So in TikTok there is this whole culture. If I'm going to use your video for my video and and YouTube's much more of a, my video is my video and your video is your video. And so there's less like riffing off of other people's videos. And that is such a huge culture in TikTok. Uh, and I think that that's the one thing when you go to, uh, because we're getting ready for NAB, I'm really watching a lot of YouTube shorts to try to like get a sense of those. And that's what I really feel like They're, they're not as, um, they're just not as fun. You know, I think that that's the, that's the real challenge there. But, but I will say that the quality is really there. The, you know, most of the other things are there. So I think that if TikTok gets turned, gets shut down, I think you're going to see all those TikTokers, you know, go over to shorts and and start to go. And I think it'll be, it'll really change shorts because it'll be like, you know, you had a, a great, co- you know, with shorts right now it feels like you have a great college team and then suddenly all these pro teams all just show up and start playing so i think that for youtubers it'll be a little bit of an eye-opener if, if all the tiktokers the big tiktokers start moving to youtube um the the quality will go way up but it'll be hard for the youtubers to to stay quite i think um as competitive because the tiktokers are so good at what they do um yeah go ahead chris
4: i, I first of all sorry about my mic earlier uh I think uh, Instagram shorts or stories or whatever the heck they call them, I, I think that's much more likely to to replace TikTok than YouTube Shorts. Mm-hmm. I, I, I I think that I think the the thing that fascinates me most about the Instagrams is that um, is the discovery button or whatever they call it, the find thing, the way that it keeps track of what you've looked at and continues to show you the things that you've bought off on. And the fact that any one of the things that you click on there will take you on another journey. It's it's almost like going into a whole nother Instagram. It's like, oh now, now everything is derived on this impression that I've take that I gave it at some point. So like, you know, I might be scrolling, I was like, oh, here's a here's a Milwaukee toolbox and I click on that and all of a sudden I'm in Milwaukee toolbox land and everything is about Milwaukee toolboxes. It's, it's, I think it's truly amazing. I get it that everybody's doing something like it, but, um, I think that's the algorithm that you want to grab, copy and implement for like a trade show. Like there should be an Instagram instance builder something, for every trade show you go to. And people pay big money to get in there. And then once you click on that, once I click on one camera, it's like, wow, look at all this cool camera gear now.
0: I, I think that for me, I'm mostly looking at my my I my only sense of what's cool and not cool is my kids. You know, so I have a fourteen or fifteen year old and and looking at like that what they watch. And I'm pretty cool. <laughs> Uh, they don't use Facebook or Instagram, and uh, their their friends use Snap and YouTube. You know, those are the two big things that they're that they're on, and and they don't. My my kids aren't on Snap because I won't let them. But anyway, but the um, oh, they're not even that interested. They're not. They don't really care. But but the um, but their 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 whole world is wrapped around Shorts and long form in, in YouTube, and they don't they don't pay any attention to Facebook or Instagram anymore. It's just, it's a, it's a really interesting interesting phenomenon. Right, go
3: ahead, Jonas. I think it's also going to be interesting how TikTokers are going to manage the shift if there's going to be a shift and if that's going to help them build uh, communities. One of the things that I hear all the time is you know, these huge TikTokers, but they really haven't built a community yet on short form content. And that's really, really hard right now to build the community on short content where they then go to the longer form YouTube, a series, a podcast. So I think that's going to be really interesting um, especially with YouTube having the clipping tool where we could say, hey, let's clip out a question per office hours and upload that as a shot. Um, I think that's where it could really accelerate and also like just help them get a better community and grow those communities better.
0: Yeah, I think that Almost everybody I know, including myself, where that we've been really successful is to use whatever you, whatever platform you're on, to build that community somewhere else. <laughs> so, so you, you know, you're constantly, You, you give people a reason, and you'll see the, you know, a lot of the YouTubers are using, um, they're using either Patreon or they're using. Uh, a lot of them are using building their own Discords, and these Discords are. Massive, Like I'm on a bunch of these servers and these, some of these discord servers are just massive. And they're, that means that they're building up that following and they're getting them out there and they're building that relationship outside of the platform. It's hard for the platform. And I don't know how those platforms really can do that effectively, you know, like to, to do the video part and the community part. It's, it's an interesting puzzle. Next question
2: next question comes to us from michael marsh in san anselmo how do you get a headphone output from macbook pro to desktop speakers without a noisy signal wired headphones sound uh fine
1: i go with courtney well it depends really without knowing what your desktop speakers are it's hard to answer that if there's just speakers and they're not amplified speakers if they don't have their built-in amplifiers in them um then you're taking an output that was really designed just to drive headphones to drive speakers. So you're gonna to have to crank up the amplifier in the Mac and it may you may hear a lot of system noise that way. Uh, get amplified speakers and plug them into the headphone output on the Mac and turn the volume down on the Mac so that you're not overdriving the speakers. And if that is the what you're causing a noisy signal, it could be that you're Hitting if you have amplified speakers and you're hitting them with too much signal, it can be distorted. If that's what you're talking about, noisy signal. Uh, in that case, turn the output of your Mac down on the software side, uh, and then turn the gain up on the uh, on the amplified speaker uh, a little bit. If you're overdriving them and hearing distortion, that would be your problem. It's just a manage of uh, problem of gain staging, so that you're not overdriving and you're not underdriving the input impedance into your amplified speakers. And if they're just speakers, get regular ampli- get amplified speakers and you'll have less of a problem. And if it's the output of the Mac that's a problem, there's also, you can go with something like this, which is Sabrient, which is a separate USB uh, D to A converter and it will give you a, a uh, the green one is a line out or a headphone out and the red one is a microphone in. So that gives you uh, another chance at getting less noisy signal out. Uh, if it happens to be the amplifier built into your MacBook Pro,
0: yeah. If if you uh, if if it's really built as as computer desktop speakers, it should sound fine when you go into the headphones. So that shouldn't be really a problem. If you're trying to put them into bigger speakers or nicer speakers, uh, everything that Courtney just said is probably spot on there. The one thing that I would say is that when I Go uh, out to anything that's got XLRs or anything that's more than just the really a desktop set of speakers. Uh, I'm going to go out of some kind of interface, so it's a USB to XLR interface. What I don't want is any, uh, any, any kind of um, ba- unbalanced uh, connections. So I don't use friends. Don't let friends use unbalanced connections out of their computer. <laughs> so not even for six inches. Like, not like I don't know unbalanced. No unbalanced, <laughs> so so that's where you get all your noise. I, I I can't tell you how many events I've been in, and I can hear a buzz somewhere on a speaker, and I just go down the path and find the person with, you know, some playback pro or something else, and I just pull their pull their headphone, pull the the little pod ter- pod thing that they have in there. I just pull it out, and the buzz goes away. <laughs> you know, so it's so if you're hearing a buzz, that's a that's a ground loop or some kind of uh, pickup, and it's picking up. It's because you have an unbalanced connection. So if it's a if it's noisy and distorted. It's what Courtney said. If it's buzzy, then it means that you have an unbalanced connection that's picking up power around it. And go ahead, and, uh, Chris.
4: It, it could also just be a bad cable. Could be. Um, also, I will say, I have uh, for several years, and they still sell them, it looks like. For several years, I give you a, a, a recommendation. I highly recommend the Bose Companion 20 desktop speakers. They They're driven off your headphone jack. They come with this little puck. You put the puck next to your keyboard, and it's a volume control. Whoop, whoop, whoop. You tap it, it mutes, and there's a place to plug in your headphones. There, it it mirrors it so that you don't have to reach back behind the computer to plug in the headphone jack. I have a couple pairs of them. I carry a pair with me in my road kit when I used to travel for work. Uh, The Bose Companion 20. Really cool little set of speakers. Go Jonas. One thing to also keep in mind, it took me a while to
3: figure out when I first set up my mix Pre. is a Thunderbolt carries enough voltage that that is, could also be considered a power cable So make sure if you have like Thunderbolt and add a Thunderbolt into my mix Pre, and then like the headphone over that and suddenly there's a bus um, so keep that in mind. Absolutely. Next question.
2: Next one comes to us from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. When testing a mic for Zoom, what are your procedures and parameters? Thanks.
0: I mean, I think one of the most important things is to get somebody on the other side. <laughs> so, so when you're testing the mic for Zoom, they have a little tester in there. The tester is horrible in, inside of Zoom. So uh, I played with it a couple of times. It is so, the quality of the tester is so low and so compressed that it's not worth even opening up. So you really need to talk to someone who knows what they're listening to on the other side to tell you does it sound good? Not everyone's going to have a meter um, like we have here in the show, um, so that may not be the that might not be the viable way to do it. But but you should talk to someone in the inside of office hours. The best way to do it is if you are doing it is jump into after hours and ask people to listen to your mic and uh, let let them know if it's uh if it's working well or not. Uh, Next question.
2: Next one comes from James Fossling in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And James says, when an iPad gets corrupted, is there any recommendations to make sure you rebuild with all the same apps minus the corruption?
0: Uh, Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, When mine uh, changes, when I change iPad, I tend to use the iCloud backup. I found that actually a very accurate way to get things back where I started. You just need to make sure you get the version that isn't corrupted when you back it up, when you recover. So, I have to admit, I mean, I I definitely, the only thing that I have on my iPad that I really care about are my notes or my photos, but those are all somewhere else in iCloud. Uh, Because I bought all those apps, um, anytime I have a problem with pretty much anything, but definitely with my iPad, because all those apps are sitting there, uh, I don't try to back or move or port anything. I grind it all the way down. I start over again, and I just start installing the apps. In fact, I just start installing apps as I need them. So uh, I've bought so many apps, so I put them on all my machines, uh, they would just fill up pages. I mean, I can fill 10 pages of apps. So what I do is I go, oh, where's that app? And then I download it. Where's that app? And I download it. And, and so I, that keeps my, my iOS devices relatively clean um, by not having them just sitting there just because they were there before. Um, next question.
2: Michael uh, Marsh in San Anselmo's up next. I'm looking for an app that will automate the stitching of many small maps into a single large one. Any recommendations?
0: Go ahead, Courtney.
1: I thought I knew of one, but I did find one. Uh, I, Google used to have something that would stitch together photographs. You have to have overlapping photographs. If your maps are individual maps that don't overlap, if, you're, if the images of these maps don't overlap, you might have a problem. I did find an app uh, called... Uh, Map Stitch Image Stitcher on uh, Google Play. So there is an app available on the Google Play Store uh, for map Stitch Image Stitcher. Look at that. Maybe it'll do what you're looking for.
0: Yeah. I haven't, I haven't found a lot of automatic ways to do this. Um, so it, I, I imagine this is another one of those things we talk a lot about AI, that AI will eventually be able to look at and figure this out pretty quickly. But right now, I would probably end up taking it into Photoshop and mapping them, and I don't know how many small maps you have. One tangential tip is if you're actually trying to map something a large area with that's photographic um, and, you, and you have access to a drone and uh, take a look at the 14 day uh, free trial of drone deploy, you can literally just set it up of a Google map area. Like I just wanna map this entire area and you hit go and the drone just takes off. The the DJI ones are the ones that work the best, but it'll just take off and just start building a grid. You'll see it zipping back and forth as it builds that grid. It'll even come and land, let you change the battery and let you put it back up again and let it do its thing. I've mapped a lot with with that. So if you're looking at mapping something with a drone, that might be something that's really interesting. Otherwise, if you're just taking image-based maps, you're probably gonna, I don't know, possibly Courtney's solution uh, or by hand. Next question.
2: Next one comes to us from Henry Ramos in Yonkers, New York. Any iPhone, iPad apps that can utilize a 360 cam in a Zoom-like conference? Bidirectional conversation is needed. Use case a realtor showing a home to a client.
0: So you can uh, stream. I don't know if you can do it. I don't know if you'd be able to do it quite that way, but you can stream out from a theta. So the little theta that is about this big. Uh it has uh you can plug in a USB on the bottom and you can actually stream from there. There's also there's a couple different uh, um a couple different companies that make a variety of different um versions of these, but the theta is the smallest and easiest one to use. Yeah, Bill's showing one right there. So that's the theta. It it has um uh it has the two lenses, it will get rid of its own seam pretty well. Um, you can take a lot of pictures. I take lots of pictures with that. Um and uh, and so when I'm doing a, a scene a site survey, I do that, um, and then um, you can use, uh, then you can stream that out, and then you have to find a player. There's you, what you want to search for is a 360 player that you could insert somewhere into it. I don't know of any that. I think you'd end up with Zoom if you wanted to show someone something. You'd end up in Zoom with them talking, but you'd be looking at the live stream from the uh, from that from that piece. We've done bigger versions of this with. Ozos, <laughs> three three Ozos work really well as a as a real estate um, thing. But those are they're not that expensive now. That when I bought them, they were sixty grand. I think you can get them on eBay for now, like two thousand dollars. But I don't know if, you, if the processing's
3: around anywhere. Go ahead, Jonas. You could take um, I think the Insta three sixties allow you to stitch it down to a one ten eighty frame. And what you then could do is you take the ten eighty frame, there's some web frameworks. You use the Zoom Video SDK to get the full frame and then you put that into a globe renderer. So you wrap it around the camera again, and then you have a 360 camera that you can move. That way you could do it, but that would be quite some development involved with that. And the uh, quality wouldn't be as good as just having someone physically move the camera on location because um, you would be bound to the 1080p for all 360 degrees. And the uh, and I will say
0: that... Um, there's a whole section in Insta360 about real estate. So (laughs) if you do uh, Insta360 Enterprise Industries Real Estate, you'll find it there. So uh, definitely check out what they're doing. I think that one of the things I would think about also is, uh, you may find it easier to manage if you, uh, I don't know if the 360, because the quality of the 360 to get enough resolution might be hard for real estate you may be better off with a matterport and you know have get the mapping of the entire piece so someone looks through it through 360 but when they actually want to ask questions i think that they might actually be better off with just a regular handheld camera where they're walking around now maybe the now it might be something that you're using a gopro or something that is that the real estate person can sit there and kind of do a Uh, a Tom Scott kind of approach of kind of pulling things around and and showing them stuff. But I think that that might be better. It's just hard because it's hard to get close to something like, oh, I want to look at the stove and getting up close to the stove is going to be hard with a 360. You'll never get close enough to it where if you had a regular camera, you could do that. You still want the 360 so they can walk around in it. And that's where something like a Matterport is the easiest way to to do those things um, and throw them together. But that's just something to consider. Uh, Next question.
2: Next one comes back from Andy Kokendorfer from VR, Florida again. What is the psychological argument for widescreen aspect ratios? Why is 2.35 uh, to 1 so appealing? Go ahead, Sky. I'm
5: going to let Courtney handle the, the aspect ratio of the 2.35. Uh, I just know that the concept of IMAX was to engulf you in the experience. There, Trying to get you out to your peripheral vision was, I believe, the goal of uh, the, the person that was creating the IMAX experience. And I know here in Seattle, we were very fortunate to have the Cinerama. And there's also one there again in Hollywood, the Cinerama Dome, which originally used three projectors to create that, that, you know, full wide perspective of taking you, engulfing you in the experience. But it was very expensive because you had to film with three cameras and then you had to project with three cameras, which while A very cool thing when it was created became very expensive very quickly. So, um, that's the psychological concept of is since you're being entertained, is taking you into the experience. Now, the specific aspect ratio, that's where Courtney's the the engineered technology. Good, Courtney.
1: Well, I think 235 came about with uh, Todd AO or CinemaScope, uh, which used is uh, used uh, atomorphic lenses to spread the image. That was squeezed when it was photographed on standard uh, 35 millimeter and 65 millimeter film uh, to a wider aspect ratio. To, as Sky said, to fill your peripheral vision, and if it if it wraps around and it fills your peripheral vision left and right, it puts you more into the scene, and you you suspend disbelief that you're sitting in a theater watching a movie, and you think you're actually there. That's the psychological reasoning behind it. IMAX is more of a square format, actually. Uh, originally, it's just a huge screen with a lot of resolution to fill your peripheral vision, not only horizontally, but vertically as well. Uh, but um, uh, 235 to 1 is still used in a lot of uh, theatrical features these days, um, although there's a trend to go back to 185, which was the standard standard thea- theatrical distribution uh, aspect ratio for many, many years. So... Uh, that's that's about all I know on aspect ratios. Wider is better.
5: Good, Sky. To give you the full experience, uh, Smell-O-Vision was tried, but it uh, they couldn't vacate the the smell between uh, events that were you were being seen on, on screen. And in high school, I was a projectionist, and that was the manager's job was to tell me to open the popcorn so that the vent of the popcorn would go in because that's where the theater made the money.
0: Yeah, the... The, the other problem now that they have is that there's so much of the content being created for the television, not for a giant screen. And uh, you know there's a lot of talk about going back to sixteen by nine, even though it's a very square format uh, compared to the other ones, mostly because uh, people keep on saying why is why is the top and bottom cut off? <laughs> so so like you know so there there's kind of this pushback from the user of if you're gonna produce something for streaming, I just want it to fill my, people feel like they want to fill their whole screen. And so I think that there's, a, there's been more and more pushback that we've seen. Um, I know that when we do events, uh, people do these really wide ones for an event, for hybrids and so on and so forth. And we push back pretty hard going, well, you know, most of your viewers are watching this in 16 by 9. <laughs> so so you just just think about you know whether you really want to put that big big wide screen there because it's it just means that you're going to have to build two versions of it and that doubles the price oftentimes or not doubles it but increases it by 50%. So just you know it's just cost and then usually that usually starts to that's been slowly pushing down on the the super wide
3: screens that we've seen in LED walls uh, over the past decade. Uh, go ahead Jonas. I also find it interesting with the age of a lot of mobile phones, a lot of people changed away from 16 by nine. It's like, what is it? 16 by 10 that most phones now have. So a lot of the VOD content on YouTube now actually isn't 16 by nine anymore, which on the PC is crazy when you do full screen and now you have black bars again, but on your phone, it's great. And the YouTube app now allows you to zoom in exactly. So all you've, Screen is filled, which I find really interesting because now we're back to like, hey, let's keep some safe space at the top, at the bottom, because phone users will be zoomed in. Um, it's quite the interesting, like flow of like, let's go wide, let's go small again, let's do this, and, and yeah, and then to make it more complicated, you know, for a while people
0: were like, well, how do we do movies in three sixty? You know, and how do we, how are we doing immersive movie, movies? But as these one of the things that a lot of people found is that generating content at 180 degrees, not 360, but 180 degrees is really cool. So there's a lot of people that are talking about shooting films, not immersive, like choose your own adventure, but just the film is, what you see in front of you is 180 degrees, uh, which, is, so that's a, which is a whole fascinating thing in itself. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney.
1: Yeah, and there was a big discussion when they went to high def television when they were establishing the formats for high def. They settled on 16 by 9, which is 1.7777777 to 1. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it was a compromise between the theatrical 185 and the 4 by 3, which standard deaf television was. So that's why you ended up with. Uh, you know, letterboxing on widescreen and letterboxing and pillarboxing on standard def to high, high def. So you're going to end up with black bars either way. And that's why sixteen by nine became the the sun. I guess I was going
4: to say bastard. Sun, but yeah, keeping it clean. Yep. Go, ahead. Go ahead. You said it anyway. Go ahead, <laughs> Go ahead Chris. <laughs> and yet you said it anyway, Andy. I think the short answer to your question about why widescreen is is more. Um, would you say, a psychological argument for widescreen aspect ratios? Because our eyes are next to each other and not on top of each other. That, that That's what I would say. Well,
0: that would be interesting if they were on top of each other. That would be a very odd... Mm. Pair of sunglasses. It'd be hard.
4: The ears wouldn't work.
0: Next question.
2: And the frames would close your mouth. Hmm. Um, you wonder why we are so uh, obsessed sometimes on office hours and depth of field. This next question will bring some of it to light. Douglas Carmichael asks, Alex... What is that flashing device to the left
0: of the QL one? (laughs) It's driving him crazy. Uh, I I believe that's the Dante router. I mean, that just that's just a router that happens to be managing all the Dante stuff that goes on within the office. So I think I believe that's the router that that's what that router does. But yeah, a lot more in focus today than usual because we're just I'm using a little Insta 360. Um, By the way, something that was pointed out last night is that there is a reason that that ob might be more interesting to a bunch of us than the insta360 so I, I i would like to make that correction today um the obs bot uh it, um is uh, uh addressable via, o- via osc oh really the... zoom osc can yeah. can see it oh someone someone's name who rhymes with uh, andy carluccio read read <laughs> into the uh um read into uh the deeper documents and uh, the Obsbot is, uh, is is addressable by OSC. So a lot of us are going to look at it, and then I think we, I think we're going to do one of our first like mass emails to Insta360, going, "Hey, we're trying to make a decision between the Obsbot and your thing, and it's addressable by OSC, and yours isn't.
3: What's up? <laughs> How you doing? Isn't the oh. sensor of the Obsbot also larger, like the Obsbot Tiny Two? yeah it's larger i think the problem is, is
0: to me it's larger but it doesn't mean anything because it's wider angle like the the, the for me the downside yeah. of the spot, why i completely read it i completely just wrote it off because i was like it's too wide angle like like i'm gonna have to zoom in so anything that they added to the to the sensor doesn't benefit me at all but now the osc stuff whew, that's gonna
4: that makes it hard i'm gonna have to buy at least one of them just to see what's going on yeah go ahead chris for those who are interested, I am compiling a list of all the names from Discord that do rhyme with Andy Carluccio. <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway, so uh, anyway, so the um, so a lot, a lot of fun there. Uh, uh. By the way, if you want to ask questions, you of course you can ask questions uh, for the first hour. Also, uh, take a look at Altion's website um, and uh, see if you have questions for the second hour. You can go ahead and throw those in any time. Uh, and uh, but first hour, uh, still still room for questions, so you can ask those questions now. Also, vote on the questions. Uh, the voting that you have on the questions uh, really defines where they end up in that stack. And so it's really, your votes do matter. Um, So uh, definitely check that, check out Mukana and check out those votes and throw some questions in if you have them. All right, let's go to the next question. Rob
2: Harris in St. Paul, Minnesota says, I get volume out of my Heil PR 40. I just get volume out of my Heil PR-40. I have to be speaking loudly just an inch or two right into the diaphragm. For input, I've tried a Blue Icicle, a Behringer interface, and most recently a Mackie Big Knob Studio I need more than negative 30
0: dB. Go ahead, John.
6: Yeah, just as a frame of reference, I've got the Heil PR-40, and I've tried all of the Scarlett stuff. Uh, I used to have the two or three different Scarlets. They barely, barely drive. And now I have a clarette and the the gain is all the way up i have pr40 on my mix pre 10 and my volume is just over 12 o'clock about one o'clock so you need good preamp and go ahead courtney yeah exactly a good preamp that
1: can handle maybe 65 to 70 db of of gain to use those dynamic microphones otherwise uh you're not going to get enough you're going to run out of gain the um MixPres, of course, have enough, and the RODECaster Pro, which I am speaking on, is claimed to have enough clean uh, amplitude to handle a high LPR-40 okay, so you could look at those two uh, if you're looking to spend seven to 800 bucks for a mixer.
0: That solves your problem. Go ahead, Nigel.
4: Yeah, I was using a CloudLifter on
1: mine to try and get it up, and it was, I think, just inducing too much noise into the system, and when I put it straight into the MixPre 3, uh, I was able to get to the right level.
0: I think the zoom don't some of the zoom ones have enough uh, gain to to make that work? So this so if you're looking for something a little less expensive, the zoom ones are a, a possibility as far as uh, what they have there. I do think that the cloud lifter, again, that's not something that I would recommend ever putting into a pipeline by choice. A lot of us carry the cloud lifters around in our backpacks so that when in a pinch we put them in but I would never build a system around them. I'm, I'm not even sure if the person who makes the Cloudlifter or the company that makes the Cloudlifter would suggest that. <laughs> Maybe they would, but that would be crazy. Um, you know, So uh, the Cloudlifter is really good for as a pinch of like, I can't get to where I need to get to for the show, but I wouldn't build a pipeline around a Cloudlifter. And so you definitely wanna look for one that as said before, was negative, negative or 60 to 70 dB of gain. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, if you're looking at the zooms,
1: uh, go with the F-series, not the H-series. So like the F3, they came up with this F3, which is a 32-bit uh, interface as well and takes XLR inputs. Uh, that might do it for you. It's said to have the better preamps in it that, that the F-series have. in it. So if you're going to go
0: zoom, that's a way to the But the, the 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 vast majority of us are using you. Uh, mixed pre threes is, is where, where a lot of us have gone. Uh, next question.
2: Chris Fenwick on the panel from Emeryville, California says, has anyone been contacted by solutions.org about their software compliance? Adobe has some really egregious demands in their ULA that we have all agreed to. That's their user license, right?
4: Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I don't know. If it, first of all, uh, Alex, have you ever heard of this organization oh, Yes. Yeah okay (laughs) yeah i mean the the
0: main thing that i've never been contacted by them but we think about that a lot um you know so the main thing is is that and adobe i think is one of the ones that works with compliance solutions the bottom line is is that for all the software that we've bought there is a certain level of you know there's you know there's maybe it says you can install it on one computer or two computers uh you're not really buying and oftentimes you're not really buying the software you're you know, in some weird way,
4: leasing You're not buying it, you're leasing it.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah, you're leasing that software from them. And so you don't really own it. And so in a lot of ways, you can't, what's interesting is as you dig into it, you're not really allowed to sell it. Like you can't really, cause you don't own it. You know, you're know, you bought, you bought this like, permanent
4: lease. Yeah, that's, th- that, that's so, not the issue. No, but, but that, so,
0: so the bottom line is, is that a lot of times people have get a little loose in the past, they've gotten a little loose before subscriptions of installing it on a couple computers and, you know, having it, you know, having one copy go into a lot of places. And uh, all of that has become, uh, you know, the, the the what you put yourself at risk at when you own a company. And the reason that most companies don't have too much of a problem with this once they get going is because, or they, they don't, they, if they're smart, they don't have too much trouble, is that one um, upset employee will call the compliance solutions and say these guys are using a bunch of pirated software and then they come down and it's like $250,000 a unit. I mean, it's enough to drown somebody's company, uh, to, you know, get caught. Now, usually what that, I've talked to people who have been called, again, I've never had the problem, but, uh, that they say, I mean, they come in and they go, there, it could be 500,000 or $100 a hundred million dollars of thing. And then they negotiate something down to, you know, money like 10 grand 20 grand like it's like not not small number not not small potatoes but but they usually don't make you pay the whole amount but they have a stick that is like i think a quarter million dollars per infraction that was given to them by congress and so they so that it's a lot of there's a uh, there's a lot of leverage there go ahead courtney yeah, I was wondering if this was like uh, ADA compliance so
1: that uh, your, your screen's interface can be handled by screen readers, et cetera. Maybe Rashid can tell us more about that. But I think this is really just a lawyer's serving lawyer's service that uh, makes sure that there's you can't be sued over some
4: petty thing in your so, software. So what has happened? Here's the problem. One, they send you these... Uh, uh, emails, and they say, we're working for Adobe, but they offer no proof of that. So -hmm. they've taken a paragraph. They might be working for Adobe, but they haven't proven that to me. Mm -hmm. Then they take a paragraph out of the EULA, and the stuff that we have all agreed to, to use Adobe software, is really astonishing. It's like, uh, uh, if you're a business, uh, you uh, relinquish the right to be audited physically and electronically once every 12 months. Like, they get to, Mr. Fenwick, Mr. Fenwick, we'd like to talk to you about your software. Um, And then, uh, let me see, what's the other thing here? You will provide us with all the records and information requested for us within 30 days of our request. And again, this organization contacts you with no proof that they're actually working for Adobe. They say they are. Yeah, I mean... Uh, Maybe they are.
0: I just think, I would ignore all that. <laughs> like, you know, that's all I heard from from Adobe. You know, like, like and, and I would, you know, especially now, we, most of us are on subscription. I mean, how do you, you can't really do anything that breaks the
4: rules. You, you can't, although I read something in one of the, they claim, again, uh, this organization, uh, was it what I say? It was the Software Compliance Association, or whatever it is. Here's a very interesting paragraph I just read. What is your underst What is your understanding about? So Adobe says you can install this on two computers, correct?
0: Yeah, but the intention is the same same user, two different computers. Ah, that's the so the, the that's the assumption is you're not putting it on two different computers and letting two different people use it. It's two and and again, there's a we always have to look at these. The, the EULAs are are really aggressive. If Do- if Adobe actually did what they said that they could do in the eula the uh, the loss of users would be pretty intense so so there's a there is a law there 's a legal thing that they 've had you agree to, but they couldn 't enforce it without losing millions of people using it lose
4: me pretty quick
0: yeah so i mean I, I, again i, I don 't think that i I think that there's a a lot of times you write <laughs> you want to write if you're, if you if you know that people are just going to click okay because they don't want to read all the words. You'll put a lot of things in there that give you a lot of latitude that's going to let you do whatever you want later if someone's really problematic. So if someone's doing something problematic, you give them no room. This is how a lawyer works. Is you give, if you know that they're going to click through it, uh, you give them no loopholes. You just want to take out all the loopholes they could possibly have and that you know that they're going to click through it because they're not reading it. And that's how you get that. Now, it would be very crazy for Adobe to actually do most of those things because they would end up all over social media. And then, you know, they did it, you know, and so, so they, there's a, there's a limiter to what they can actually do regardless of what the law is. Um, but they're going to do all of that so that if they find someone who is, I mean, if they take someone to court over software, it's rarely over, you have one or two whatever's or whatever. And a lot of times um, people have just been asked to like, just buy the ones that you didn't buy, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and sometimes there 's a little bit of extra, but a lot of times it 's literally we could charge you a million dollars, but we just need you to buy the ones that you didn 't buy you know that kind of thing uh, and pay maybe a five thousand dollar fine or something like that but But the point is, is that 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 's all negotiable, and they don 't want to do that but it 's if someone says, "Well, I actually did this and this and this and this and this, and the euLA leaves no oxygen um you know in there to to argue about it if someone is 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 egregiously taking advantage of the software so i don 't think that I think that they do it. I mean, again, growing up as a family of lawyers, you put everything in you can <laughs> and because you can put all the things you want in there because because no one's arguing. Um, so you, you put all that stuff in, but they couldn't actually in reality do it. Because there's the physics of social media would push back too hard, and it would be too damaging to the brand. So right. you just have to look at it like there's a there's a reality to it, and then you have these little you know monkey solutions that are calling you that you know the monkey software solutions that are calling you about it. And I would just ignore them, just, just don't even bother.
4: So anyway. so one last question before we move on, just from a show of hands, and maybe we could put up the gallery view. The people here on the gallery uh, uh, panel, how many people are under the? Are uh, understand that the Adobe license agreement means that only one person can use the two installs that they allow. I mean, understand that. I understand that. Yeah. So, Alex, one, two, three, half of the. I part. don't
2: understand, but I don't have any Adobe software
0: left on my system. Yeah. So, yeah. Go, ahead. go, ahead, John.
4: Uh, Chris, you
6: should just retire and build Tallmakers.
4: No kidding. <laughs> I am so sick again, of this business. Again, again, it's 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 it just really isn't that. It, I, I I don't think it's nearly as
0: deep as it sounds. But yeah, next question.
2: Next question comes to us from Aaron Wilson in Lebanon, Tennessee. What is the best way to mic a trumpet? Also, what are your suggestions for microphones for both recording and live performance? It can be two different microphones. I go, it's kind.
5: I am not an audio engineer. But I know one, and I've sat next to Jeff Francis on this very panel before. So, I, if you are available to, uh, on our Discord in this community, Jeff Francis does this for a living and has done it for many years, and is brilliant at this question. I've also put a link in the chat from um, not Stillwater, Sweetwater. As answering this very question, because and giving you all of your different options, but I know that makes means you have to read it and and uh, make choices and decisions. And Jeff's a lot more fun to do that. Good, Bill.
2: I remember um, seeing trumpets, and most of the ones in the early days, at least, were were mic'd pretty much with those crown large diaphragm. Connected microphones, the same one that Garth Brooks used to sing into. I would imagine there are better solutions now that we've had many years. And I agree that if you come on the audio days when people like Jeff are here, they'll give you the the modern solutions
1: for this. Go ahead, Courtney. If the Mickey answers: it depends. Because a trumpet, and I used to play the trumpet, is a very directional instrument. The sound comes out of the narrow bell and goes directly out from that. And so if you're off axis from the bell you're going to have problems. That's why a lot of uh, trollo, uh, trumpet trollo, trumpet soloists uh, have a thing that, that actually clips a small microphone onto the bell and holds the microphone out in front, as long as they're not using a mute uh, to mic the sound. That way they can get really creative in pointing the pointing the trumpet in a certain direction. So whenever you're micing a trumpet, regardless of the microphone that you use, uh, bear in mind that the technique that the trumpeters are using, if it's a whole uh, row of trumpeters, you know, you need to put a mic in front of them and have them all point toward the mic. Uh, otherwise, you're going to get a uh, uh, little bit of Doppler shift as they move back and forth, and uh, strange artifacts. That's why they use clip-on mics sometimes for trumpets if they're moving around.
0: Oops, you're muted, Alex. And Mickey performs ribbon. Mickey prefers ribbons. Uh, next question. Joe Andrews in
2: Lebanon, Oregon, says, what would be a good microphone to get crowd noise and to the appropriate level for a stream being deployed in a swimming pool venue during large events? Ooh, Ooh that's a toughie. <laughs>
0: um, you know, a lot of times we've used a variety of shotgun mics as well as labs. I mean, we've actually taken labs and just dropped them out there and and gotten some relatively good noise. Uh, uh, crowd noise out of them um, and placed usually somewhere usually what we're trying to find is a is a sign or a return monitor or something that we have there that we can grab those getting into the crowd a little bit makes it a little easier not to get so much uh, pickup you have to, you have to be careful of you know what where that crowd noise is going it's only going to the stream and not back into the speakers um, but uh, but we've used both shotgun as well as um, as far as la- shotgun from where our positions are so that we don't have to put them into the, in the audience but We have found that labs work pretty well as well. Go Bill.
2: That's one of those areas where I might be playful and try a parabolic reflector with a little cardioid inside of it. At least you can turn it in directions
0: like toward the crowd or
2: toward the pool. The water noise, I would imagine is crazy there.
0: Yeah, I, the the problem with the parabolics, of course, you pick up three people instead of like, what we're trying to usually do is when we put those mics out there, we want to grab everybody or as many people as we can to kind of grab the scene. Um, Next question.
2: Paul Terry Wallace, Austin, Texas, up next. Are cPanel and WHM the best way to manage websites? Go ahead, Jonas.
3: I think if you need a management interface like that, you probably should rely on someone else managing your web server. Or if you, there kind of was this like huge growth of like everyone has their own Plask or cPanel or VMS panel uh, server. But I think now. Can you explain to everybody what the cPanel is? So cPanel is a software that automate that gives you a GUI interface for all the um, for allowing multiple websites to be hosted on the same server. So you can have like the office hours and the after hours and like all those websites and subdomains on there. And then you can install plugins like WordPress. You can have a PHP server running simple stuff like that. Um, behind the scenes, it probably uses a mixture between Nginx and Apache, which are servers and proxy servers but if you don't know how to set them up and you just follow the tutorials then you have to rely on cpanel or vms panel to also protect you and secure you if you want the best way i would go with someone who knows what they're doing who's experienced in managing and maintaining web servers because you're constantly under attack like if you don't see attacks daily you just already have been attacked if i look at the logs of my web servers there's like an attack every 30 seconds and the question is just how fast can you respond to an attack that comes through because someday they will come through it's not a question of if it's a question of when so if you go with a big provider or like one of the hosting providers um it's way more secure and if you don't and if you are experienced enough you can also just set it up with the underlying frameworks yourself good john
6: uh jonas must have read my notes
2: <laughs> uh, very good uh, next question Comes to us from Douglas Carmichael again. Telos is marketing a virtualized mix engine for the radio market. Are there any virtual mixers
0: that could work for other audio applications? And he's got a link to this. I think there's a lot coming up. I mean, one of the things that happened uh, that, we saw this huge surge during COVID of not being able to do this, and audio turned out to be this super painful part of the pipeline that hasn't been solved very well. Uh, a lot of people use Mixbus, which was something that Harrison uh, put out, uh, but we're also seeing a lot of other things starting to crop up. I know I've been pinged about, hey, are you going to NAB? We have a new virtual server. <laughs> we have a new virtual mixer. So uh, I think that we'll, there'll be five or six in the market by the end of this year. Go ahead, Jonas.
3: Yeah, so uh, there's CloudMX, which is a cloud-based virtual server from Waves that we have used for evaluation. Um, It allows you to also bring in all the cloud, uh, all the Waves plugins. Then like LXX, there's MixBuzz, and then there's virtualized versions of different um, hardware. Software Mixes, um, Lavo, has a really interesting radio product. Uh, Relay is what they call it. that also is useful, and um, we actually looked at that. That is pretty neat interface. Um, but the one from Telos is pretty interesting because it integrates with all the existing system that Telos has. And uh, we have been looking at a lot of the Telos stuff in the cloud, and they really seem to understand what they're doing there, which often is a problem with as old companies as audio companies mostly are, where they just can't keep up with like licensing needs for the cloud and are yeah, overwhelmed yeah, tell- with that
0: we're probably going to spend a significant amount of time at the telus booth the telus alliance because there's so many different things that they're doing that touch on what we do so there they have some comms solutions we haven't been able to get on the show yet uh they have this solution they have a lot of the linear acoustic stuff the stuff i've used in the past uh for a variety of processing so um so i think that we're going to end up uh, uh working with them to probably spend a little bit of time with the live you uh you know wandering around the at, at nab but i Looking at virtual mixing consoles is definitely something we're going to focus on at NAB. So if anybody has those that they want us to look at, if you see the booths there, that's something that we are absolutely going to be focused on is finding every company that's doing something like that. Uh, Next question.
2: Next one comes to us from Henry Ramos in Yonkers, New York. And Henry's back with, has anyone experienced a less expensive, not sure, USB mic for six people around a small conference table to use in Meets and Zoom? The quality isn't crucial, just intelligible speech. I
0: think that that last that <laughs> that that last uh, term though is 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 almost a contradiction in terms. Uh you know they have it intelligible. Uh it's pretty hard to make it intelligible and not make it not worry about the quality. Uh, if you're looking for one USB mic, of course, there's lots of speakerphone mics that you could do. Another thing you want to look at is boundary mics for all six people. So, you know, boundary mics can be something that, that might work for you as well. Um, but, uh, you know, we really try to, av- it, unless the room is really treated, it's not so much the mics. A lot of mics will sound good if, if you have a room that's got soft walls. If, they have a, if they're have if they a typical lots of glass and whiteboards, it just sounds bad. And you should definitely, whatever you're doing, you should listen to it on the other side. Uh, I spent three or four hours a day for a decade listening to conference calls with people with speaker phones in conferences, rooms, and you spent half your time just trying to figure out what people said. Go ahead, Bill.
2: Alex is 100% right in this. I've had exactly the same experience. We used to use PZM, pressure zone modulated mics. They're a flat thing that sits on the table, but none of them have really high precision audio And even those telephone conference systems like the big uh, winged ones that you see just don't do a particularly good uh, great job because somebody might be eight feet away at one end of the table and someone else might be three feet away at the center of the table. And that inverse square principle is just going to make sure that no matter how much intelligence they put into it, one, it does not have the intelligibility of the other. Yep. Next question. Next one comes from Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia. What would your smallest good quality audio-only recording kit for field interviews be? Courtney just showed the Zoom F3. Would you use something like that with a mic and some in-ear monitors, or would you
4: use something else? Go ahead, Nigel. So I use a, a Tascam, I think it's the DR40 or something. I found that range quite good. I'm not sure, though, it has an in in monitor on it. So, But uh, those products range have changed so much since I bought it. But I found the little Tascam
1: was really great. I tend to record on a camera and then on that and then mix afterwards.
0: And Bill, real quick.
2: Yeah, the Zoom stuff is also very good. It's it's a process of field recorders. If you really want the high end and to explore this, look at look at field audio recording. There are some fabulous things, but they're very expensive at the top end. And some of these consumer things work just fine.
1: Yeah, good, Courtney. Yeah, the thing to look for is the thirty two bit float because that's an important uh, thing for field. You don't have to ride the gain. Worry about riding the gain because it has enough uh, audio gain and its A to D conversion that you don't have to worry about it exceeding and clipping or going too low that you can't recover it uh without a lot of noise so look for a 32-bit recorder and uh it will solve a whole lot of problems
0: yeah it is a um uh i, I think that for anything that matters i've generally for the last 15 years used the sound device's Device, <laughs> so that's a 744, 788 Scorpio, uh, Mixprees, you know, all of those things, and it mostly has to do with just that they work all the time, and they, you know, if, if it's got a button there, they they do what it does, what it needs to do, um, and it's really thought out and it's really rugged. Uh, so so those have been the case, and and recently, thirty, and I agree with Courtney, 32 bit float on a field recorder is table stakes at this point. Like it was really cool two years ago or three years ago. Do not buy a field recorder that does not have 32-bit float because it gives you so much range to make errors. Um, so you're not going to overmodulate. You're not going to under. You know, you, if things look relatively close to what they need to be on the on the meters, you're going to be fine. You know, and and you're going to. Ca- there's all kinds of things that are there. So uh, the zoom. I think zoom is a. I've used the zooms in co- as a cost-effective. Uh, I, I know this will sound horrible, but as a disposable recorder. I've been in a lot of places where there's chances where I, it's not good for me to have a recorder. <laughs> so so I, uh, I, in those cases, I've used Zoom because I could just throw it out the side of the car. You know? And um, uh, I wouldn't probably, I'd be more resistant to doing that with sound devices. And so, um, but the Zoom has been, you know, it's produced lots of quality audio for me uh, all over the world, as well as the sound devices ones. But if it matters and I'm doing it all the time, I'm using it in sound devices. If I'm in a more aggressive location where I may not come home with it, I use a Zoom. Uh, next question.
6: Comes
2: to us from Alex Forty Golner in London. What do you specul- speculate is the future of Red cameras? I got the feeling that they wanted to be bought by somebody else.
0: Red, uh, I, you know, I think that Red was an incredible thing when it came out. So when they when Red came out, I think this was have been two thousand seven or eight, I believe, um, somewhere in that range. Uh, and I know some friends that were the you know I think Emery Emery Wells who who started Frame.io uh, was probably I think he I think he bought I think I still remember I think he bought number forty two <laughs> was either forty or forty two that he got of the Reds and he was excited about it and I think that they had a moment and I think that they changed the industry they they changed the cost structure of what it takes but I think that the they what the problem they've really had is that the workflow of the cameras is not great. Um, the workflow of the data that comes out of the cameras has been really painful. And I know that I used, a, I used REDS for a long time. I owned a couple REDS um, and finally just got to a point where, whether it was on-site fan noise um, or other things like that, I just chose to move away from them. And um, And I found that dealing with the data on the other side was pretty painful. So um, compared to all the other pipelines. And so I think that's been the real problem for me. Good, Courtney.
1: Yeah, RED has always taken the... Uh... Uh, path of of building blocks. So you, you start with the sensor, just the sensor, and then you add this and you add that and you add this and you add that and you add 20 different modules onto it and you build out something the size of a Volkswagen uh, eventually. Uh, and there's other better solutions that have come along that are not as proprietary as the Red Raw or the Red uh, uh, data handling uh, of those. And they've branched out to Red and bought uh, a studio here in Hollywood, Red Red Studios, which is the old Renma- Renmar stages. So they now have production stages and, uh, you yeah. know, I, they're branching out. I don't think they're going to stay in the camera big, business for very long.
0: I think that the the big thing that they uh, that they got squeezed by is they got squeezed by Aerie just took over. Like when, they, when Aerie got its head around how to do digital, they produced what every filmmaker wants generally for a major fe- feature film. And Black Magic came up the other side and gave everybody else a whole bunch of stuff. And Sony pivoted really effectively into the lower cost solutions. Um, they've produced incredible cameras under 10 grand now that they didn't do before. And so I think that, that Red got pulled between the, you know, just squeezed between those two markets um, in, a, in a hard way. And so I, I, I don't know if they'll survive, but they'll, they'll be around for a little while longer. And now I'm going to hand this off to Bill.
2: Thank you, Alex. We're very excited today uh, to be talking about Altheon I.O. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's a CMS or content management system that has been optimized for modern video workflows. Uh, one of those things that allows collaboration and content sharing, sharing. and in the spirit of full disclosure, Altheon provided me with a chance to explore the portal a bit. I'm in my early experimentation, but I'm very impressed. It's beautifully designed, and my initial experience with it have been very positive. And to help us explore Altheon in more depth. We have a, us today, their CEO, Matt Samaglia. Matt, how are you? Hey, Bill. Great to see you. It's great to see you. We're really excited to get a look at this. Can you start us off by telling us a little bit about the design uh, process behind uh, Alteon and what you guys are trying to do?
7: Well, I, I think actually it's a natural segue based on what you guys were just talking about, about Red, right? It's um, the production industry has been largely democratized. And look at what we're doing right now. You know, This is a television show, if you will, uh, in, in every sense of the word, uh, that would have been uh, you know, millions and millions of dollars to produce and satellite trucks and uh, you know, camera teams all around in everyone's houses or in, in studios that you guys would be renting. And now we're able to produce really good quality content that people are engaged with every day. And, you know, as technology evolves, I think that you see other companies um, benefiting from that if they're able to transition quickly enough. And the companies that aren't transitioning or, or reading the room, if you will, um, those are the companies that are left behind. And I think that it's always important for um, all of these companies to also recognize the fact that I remember NAB in past decades, you know, you go and it's what's the latest lens or what's the latest camera uh, attachments or what are the latest, you know, essentially cameras or chips that are coming out for those cameras to make it look better. And I remember right before COVID, going to NAB and it was a very different show for me. Uh, and it was uh, the the talk of the town was cloud. You know, everyone everyone started talking about cloud. And, um, and and it's just fascinating to see how, how much we've, we've shifted. And I think going into the design processes, as you asked, around Alteon, you know, this stemmed from me working in the industry for almost 20 years. So I started out as an editor for NBC Network News. Uh, I was at the Today Show and Nightly News during a transitionary period when they went from analog to digital. And I was this young 20-year-old kid that they'd send all over the world. And, you know, I can edit uh, endlessly and produce endlessly without any sleep and prove to them that you could actually produce breaking news on a computer and uh and it was you know it was it's, it's kind of crazy to think about today just because of what we do and where we are in in time but that was really uh, a transitionary period then and um you know i got to see this wave happen and i created a production company that ended up becoming a full service agency and we service a lot of uh, Fortune 100 and 500 companies around the world. Um, I exited that business about six years ago. And again, um, I wouldn't say that that Altion is necessarily just a content management system. And I know that this sounds a little bit flimsy right now, but you know, we, we always say that we're a, a production ecosystem because we are over the next year going to be expanding that ecosystem out into other uh, formats of, of what you can receive as a user of Altion. But right now, we've been very focused on the last four years of building cloud. And this stemmed before COVID. And I, I, I always joke about the fact that I wrote an article for Forbes in uh, December of 2019 about uh, your remote workforce and, and mitigating against risk and uh, making sure that you have distributed teams and this was coming off the tails of a uh, of the sort of California wildfire season that was pretty bad that year and i come from florida and um, i i've witnessed countless hurricanes in my lifetime and i've covered countless hurricanes through nbc and i always saw what um, a weather event that occurred in a specific area would just completely decimate production you know you you couldn't go into your office you couldn't have access to your files and so on. So really kind of, uh, you know, stemmed from that as well. And and we always knew that we were going to build something that had a little bit of an uphill battle, right? We knew that we were going to have about five years to convince people that, hey, it is acceptable to work remote or to have people um, working in distributed uh, teams. And then two months later, uh, COVID hit. And, you know, we, we, we broke ground and COVID hit's, and um, IBM, one of our business partners, had released, um, they forgot that they were releasing it, but they released in, I believe it was April of 2020, an article about Alteon and about how we we're building this, this software. We could not answer the phone quick enough. I mean, there were so many people that were calling us saying, hey, I, I you know, read, read about this article about Altion. How do I get logged in? And we we had just come up with the name of the company and it was like, it was one of those like perfect storm moments. So, uh, you know, we steadily, we, we knew we were going to take a couple of years to build this product and, and really perfect it. And, um, and, and it's been, it's been incredible for me because, um, it's a product really built by creatives for creatives. And, uh, we've seen other platforms out there that are just way too overly complex. And when it came down to the design system for it, um, I'm, I'm very OCD and I'm, I'm very much a stickler for, I only want to see in front of me what I absolutely am going to use, not everything else, you know, put away the clutter because there's already so much fatigue as a creator of logging in and out of multiple platforms or, um, where is this button versus that button on on single purpose apps? You know, or hey, did I upload this file to this this service or this service or this service? You know, or oh wait, it's on my hard drive. So really, kind of going into a lot of the fatigue that a, a typical creator has on a daily basis. Um, you know, that that's shifted a lot of our mindset on UI, and um, you know, all of us collectively are creators in the whole um, arc of a story, if you will, for the production process. It's no longer a single job of a person that's just doing one thing. And I think that that's, that's really kind of a UI that we had to pay attention to.
2: So as you use this tool, what's my experience? I know I've uploaded some stuff into the cloud. What happens next? What's my experience like?
7: Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the the biggest elements is transcoding. Uh, a lot of people that are shooting on, um, let's say, Blackmagic, for instance, uh, you shoot on a Blackmagic camera, it produces a beautiful uh, picture, and then from there you have to transcode it locally on your system, and that might take a day. And and that's you know, if you have one computer, that's that's completely um, derailing you from doing any other work because it's using that computational power of that local system. But now being able to upload raw red files into Altion Cloud, we're transcoding that media so that your entire team has access to it. And it's also generating proxy. So if your offline editor wants to use a proxy workflow for the NLE that they're in, whether it's uh, Premiere or Final Cut Pro, which we support natively, um, we are, are thinking about and talking about supporting Blackmagic RAW potentially by the end of this or i'm sorry black magic da vinci uh resolution uh by the end of the the year but um but you know it's it's there's a there's a lot of stuff that we're focused on right now and and um a lot of a lot of exciting things that are going to come up at nab
2: you mentioned the integration with ibm as the cloud part of this does that mean this is a global service does it work everywhere
7: uh, yes. Yeah, so, so right now we we are uh, or we have been focused on a data center here in the U.S. Uh, come Q two, we're going to be expanding out globally. Uh, so this has been always a strategy of ours for the last couple of years, and um, we've we've stuck to that strategy so far. And there's a lot of other uh, regulations and, and laws that go into place when you're going into other territories around the world. That obviously we're trying to follow and um, and make sure that. All of our users globally have the best optimal experience, and by doing that, that's putting data centers everywhere. And um, if you are a user in, uh, you know, the UK, for instance, uh, why not use servers that are hosted in the UK uh, so that it's as close as possible? But we we do have some early beta testers in Amsterdam right now who are testing it, and they're actually having really good performance off of our data centers here in the U.S. So. Um, so it just it just goes to show the connectivity that we have globally right now and how we're, we're able to support things.
2: world keeps getting smaller and smaller. Uh, describe your typical user from the low end to the high end. I imagine you have big companies and you also have individuals.
7: Yeah, I mean, we, we have a, a fair amount of influencers that are on the platform right now. Again, these are these one person teams. It's the I'm shooting everything. I'm editing everything. I'm organizing everything and I'm, I'm outputting it out to my my TikTok channel or my YouTube channel. So we have we have that uh, end of, of the spectrum, and then we all the all the way up to we have people that are producing TV shows on it. So it's uh, it's you know some of the streaming services and and whatnot. It's it's people that knew of services that existed potentially at larger uh, studios or or production facilities that they were working on uh, with um, at one point in their career, and they knew that these tools existed in some fashion, but now that they've gone off on their own or they've, they've spun up their own production company, they obviously don't have the millions of dollars that it takes to go and support uh, uh, one of these, you know, larger dams, if you will. And, and they see what we have in, in our integrations and it, it very much is a multi-tenant environment. And we did that purposefully. You know, we, we always built this system as uh, if we were one of the major studios, but then we wanted to splice it out and, and give access literally to everyone. We've got
2: some questions here from the panel coming in. Alex, do you want to take us into that?
0: Whoops, you're muted. Uh, I, I've got a couple um, that uh, for you. So, uh, first, um, uh, can you apply LUTs in the transcode?
7: Not yet. Uh, it is. It is something that we we are working on. Um, I, I we we've done a lot of black magic tests, and as we get into other raw formats this year, um, so in in Q early Q two were um, we were actually licensed uh, Apple ProRes RAW from Apple. Um, we're one of very few companies that have been granted that privilege. Uh, so that's going to be really exciting for us to be able to support that, especially with some of the new DG, uh, DJI products that have come out recently. Um, and then later on this year, it'll be uh, Red RAW and Arri RAW uh, that we're transcoding in the cloud. But when we, sort of, when we start to get a little bit more robust on the raw side of things, uh, supporting LUTs is definitely something that's in our roadmap. Good question though.
3: Have you
0: thought about um, basic assembly edits in the cloud? So not, not replacing what Final Cut does, but I've got a bunch of stuff and I just want to cut it together and deliver maybe the, the raw data with an EDL or something like that to, to Final Cut or Resolve
7: wait for another couple months and see what we announce (laughs) (laughs) Um, is that an nab hint maybe no actually that's that's not it's definitely not an nab hint but um look i think that our our we're a relatively small people of 50 uh for this company and and you know to be at this stage that we are i'm so proud of the product that we built today and and in the circumstances that we built it in you know i mean it was building a team at the beginning of COVID and trying to, you know, really rally the troops, if you will, and tell people we need to keep working on this because there's a need for it. Um, you know, we we certainly are at a point right now where I feel incredibly comfortable with the product. Bill, you know, you've been testing it. Um, you know, we we have other people that are testing it. We have schools that are testing it now for their school systems to see uh, if they could bring it into their curriculum for next year, which is exciting for me, because I, I personally got my, my sort of itch, if you will, for the industry in, in elementary school. But, um, you know, when it comes to focus, we're always focused on making sure that we do something really well before we then expand out and add another functionality. Right. So um, we have a lot of people that come to us and say, oh, well, you don't do this, 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 this and this. And then we go to them and say, "Well, do you do that now with your workflow?" And then immediately say, they say, "Well, no, I don't. I don't have AI, you know, uh, image recognition on my hard drive." And I'm like, "Well, then, you know, give us a little bit of a break. Uh, we're, we're getting there." But GPT we, just came out. Just came out. You exactly. Know. <laughs> exactly. So I mean, we're, we we launched beta, public beta at NAB last year, uh, just to give you a perspective of where we are as a company. And, um, you know, we largely launched our, I would say our best public release was probably in around October of last year. So not too far uh, in the past that, that we've been sort of releasing these these various versions, but I guarantee you what you see at NAD, um, even today is a very slick streamlined product, uh, it's gonna be even more refined.
0: Um, is, is there any in the transcode process of this building it may not be there now, but uh, has there been thought about heads and adding heads and tails? So in, in a lot of our automated encoding systems that we've used in the past, I throw a bunch of stuff into it. It grabs some metadata, a- applies it to an open slate just so that I know what I'm looking at as it delivers it to the team.
7: Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's not something that's not a workflow that we would we would necessarily think about. Um I, I would say that more than anything, all all of our, um, we we built sort of an item structure, if you will. And within that item structure, it's a container. So that container contains the metadata, the sidecar file, the proxy and the originals, and we never touch the original. So that always stays to its original uh, pristine quality. Um, I would say that in your workflow, it's still a little bit of an analog workflow. I I hate to tell you that, but, I, w- I would argue more around having that data at your disposal, at your fingertips, using a proper UI like Altion uh, could potentially simplify that that problem that you have. And also, I, I when when it comes down to the proxies, it has to be frame accurate. So when you're doing an, a proper offline online edit, if I have a proxy that's slightly different from my original clip. Everything's out of whack now, so um, that's something that we've we've really been able to um, solve as a problem there, especially when you're you're doing edits uh, quickly. Yep. Um, and uh, so, paint me a picture
0: of how you would do this this project. So we have we're covering NAB, so we, we're we're descending on NAB. Um, we've got about fifteen people on the ground, uh, and we've got about 35 people offsite that are gonna be, you know, working on post and, and cutting and, be, you know, commenting and so on and so forth. We, um, and we and, and currently, I mean, for this show, for NAB, we'll be using LucidLink to tie everybody together and make all of those things happen. But but tell me what, whether you would integrate with LucidLink or whether you see yourself as the replacement for that, and also like how you would use it. So we've got people on phones, they've got live views, they've got the ability to upload things that are from camera files. Uh, we have people off-site that are editing those those pieces out, and I'm just so I can understand your product. Uh, my thought was is that if you can just explain, like, how would you execute that with your product?
7: Um, well, on the first on the first part of that question, um, on the LucidLink thing, uh, I'd pay attention to to what we might be talking about at NAB. Um, I actually have a call with them right after this, <laughs> um, so so uh, on those. the LucidLink side, uh, big fans. Let's just let's just see what happens. Um, but but really, uh, and and my CTO is listening right now probably and saying, Matt, don't add one more thing. To... <laughs> but but um, but but uh, no, uh, you know, I would say, uh, all right. So here's your workflow. What if you have somebody shooting on something like this? Mm-hmm. Um, we just released this week uh, an iOS app, so you're shooting. On your iPhone,
0: and do you shoot uh, with the i you with your
7: iOS app, or we're we using something like Filmic or the built-in whatever you want, oh, whatever you want, okay, whatever you want, uh, and and you go into the iOS app, you click upload. Depending on the you know seventy thousand people there, uh, and if they're going to uh, degrade your bandwidth uh, on the cell service. That, that I can't really guarantee, but um, who knows? Maybe you find a hotspot somewhere at a booth that might be really uh, cleverly positioned we're, we're at press, NAD. So
0: we can go to the press pad. We, we could find our way back. We shoot a bunch of stuff, go to the press room and upload it from there.
7: Yeah. So, so I would say there's there's a couple different ways, and, and this is where Altion gets really slick. Uh, so what if you have a computer that you set up in the press room? And you know that it's on a dedicated line of some sort or on on fast Wi-Fi. And somebody goes out and shoots on a card and just brings that card back to the computer. There's no physical person there. But let's say somebody here is in Burbank. I'm just making that up for for argument's sake. Okay, Text to Bill. Hey, Bill, uh, just plugged the card into the computer in the press room. Bill goes into Altion and actually sees that card. Using our accelerator, and the accelerator is leveraging Aspera. So now, in the press room, we've given you Aspera for free because all of our users get no it. And I know Aspera well to know, and no one else in the press room will like you. <laughs> because, exactly, because you're going to. But we don't care long. because we want really good quality content exactly. for you guys. Yeah, exactly. So so now what happens is Bill actually is able to transfer that file accessing the hard drive on that computer through the Altion accelerator. So you just pop a card in, text bill, head back out with your new fresh card. Bill is uploading all of those files and verifying those files are being sent up to Altion cloud and that they're existing for the entire team to now have access because somebody else on the team might access the Altion app and be like, "Hey, what did what was shot by, you know, Alex?" I want to go and see his folder. And you go and you start clicking through our app and you see all of the shots that Alex shot so that you know you don't double up on that. Or Alex might go to somebody else and say, hey, uh, I was at this booth. I didn't shoot this one thing. Can you go and get a little bit of extra coverage for that? So now it really becomes a collaborative process throughout the whole um, NAB of of news gathering, if you will. Um, I, I expect you guys will be at the 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 Altion booth a lot shooting a lot of content and um, one of the things that I would I would say there too is we're going to have twelve systems on the show floor for people to use so if you guys come into our booth and you say hey I want to upload some content here by all means we would love for you to do that um, but in, a, thing in an easy us. workflow <laughs> in an easy workflow scenario uh, I would say you know you guys are uploading somebody else is is bringing that footage in and editing it um, because of the slow Wi-Fi speeds or because of slow speeds in some of the hotels, take advantage of the proxy workflow, right? Download the proxies. They're very lightweight files. They're 720p MP4s, not a whole lot of uh, space. I was at a convention last week with 2,700 students and we were we were doing demos every day and we just kept using proxies as downloads. And they were quick. I mean, they really downloaded quick. That is not Aspera for download, but it's it's standard download speeds are, are actually pretty pretty substantial. Yeah, interesting. And I hope I talked through the workflow well enough. I think so, I think so. So then- Without we- plugging our booth as many times as I could. Exactly. <laughs> what And what what hall is the booth in so that we know where to take our files to upload? We are directly next to LucidLink. Oh, interesting. Just Go figure. North <laughs> Hall.
0: How convenient.
7: Right across from Avid. Yep. Uh, and
0: uh, right by the main stage. That's great. And 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 then, as people are editing, would someone pull that? I guess the editors would like as they're sharing files, their edit files, and so on and so forth. Now, again, typically we're doing a lot of that in LucidLink right now. Um, it'd be interesting to see how. We're really interested to see how we would tie in Altion with LucidLink, where we would, uh, you know, have. Me be, too. Yeah. Yeah. So all right. All right. So we'll, we'll we'll come back to that. Um, my uh, my last question for you before we hand it off to somebody else is: Are you 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 said you're going to probably handle other formats that you know might be there? Uh, is is USDZ one of those formats, or can you say?
7: Um, we we have a I, we have a pretty long list of formats that we're going to be supporting in the near future. Um, again, we have developers that are just working on the Altion transcoder. And what's been great about that process um, is we built it as its own standalone service. So within Altion, a lot of what we've been building is not just for Altion to consume, but for uh, some of our technologies to be leveraged outside of Altion. So we actually have a few companies that are on the enterprise side right now that have their own dam. And they're like, we love your transcoders or we'd love to take advantage of your transcoders in the cloud can we do that? And, and certainly that's how we built it. So we're able to give those API keys off. So we have a team just dedicated to building out this transcoding service. And um, again, you will see other formats every month sort of be uh, a part of the fold, if you will. But I, I have the list. I don't have it right in front of me, but um, we will we will add it if it's not.
6: That's great. Uh, John Preto's next up. John? Hey Matt, thanks for your time. We appreciate having here. I'm an old IT networking guy. And when I hear your name, I think of Altion, the the networking gear. Do you have any issues or challenges with that with that old brand name?
7: No, I mean, I, I think that's it's been largely defunct for a few years, but also there's like an Altion Health that exists out there that we know of. Um, our patent lawyers and and our our trademark lawyers have uh been able to navigate a lot of that through and and we've we've you know received uh, proper registration for the company um the naming process of Altion was actually just super fascinating for me i get i get very geeked out about that um we worked with lexicon branding in san francisco and you know they're sort of legendary behind pentium or swiffer or sonos or you know there's that the name list goes on uh for for companies that they've they've produced and working with them what was also really great is they made sure that this this doesn't mean you know fu and mandarin or something uh so so we've we've done a lot of checks uh in terms of the naming for the company and and we've had it for a number of years now so we're we're pretty good there
2: Okay, it's about time to turn our attention to producer questions. For those of you in the producer core out there viewing the show, you are more than welcome to add questions. We have a solid group of them to start out with. So, uh, Alex, are you going to read questions for this? Oops, you're
0: uh, muted. Absolutely. Next question yeah. is uh, from Fred Eric Eckert in Bad Ab Germany. And Fred asks, uh, will there be a DaVinci Resolve integration like there is for Final Cut and Premiere? Uh, let's see
7: what the year brings us. <laughs> but I would say I would say it's not out of the question.
0: Okay, very, very good. Uh, next question is from Sky Gleason uh, in Wa- Seattle, Washington, and Sky asks, "Where does the de- the final decision maker, content producer, fit into your system?"
7: Yeah, so it's a it's actually a really cool question. We have we have a few scenarios within Altion for non users. So um, upon ingest, one of my coolest favorite features is the ability to send a request link out to somebody that doesn't have an Altian account. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you through the story process here. Of, of I'm gonna answer that question, but let's say I hire uh, somebody to do audio work for me today, or uh, it's a stringer that, that I've hired for, for something that I'm, I'm working on. I can actually send a non-user upload link and they receive this email and I just drag files into that link, hit upload, and it uploads not only into the project but also into the folder that I designated that person to be uploading content to. So I can constantly be getting um, footage from shoots all around the world from various contributors. Uh, we have a, a super PAC in Washington actually that's using it right now for people that are knocking on doors at at houses to say, "Hey, do you want to vote for you know Susie Joe for mayor or something like that?" And they'll shoot on an iPhone. Um, and none of these volunteers have Altion accounts. So they'll shoot it, they'll upload it using this link. And then the people in, in DC are actually receiving it in their edit bay. On the flip side of that, we can send out non-user preview links. So if I have a full production that's being shot, uh, I edited it, and I want my producer or a decision maker or a client to be able to see that they receive a link from Altion, they can watch it, happy happy times but we also added three other parameters two of the parameters are giving them access to the proxy file or original file to download it okay and then the other parameter is password so that's that's another you know really key ingredient and that password is specific to that link so it's not related to your user account it's not related to them it's not related to anything else so you can make up a password on the fly for that And then the third part is expiration. So you can actually set it to expire in a day or a week or never. And I personally, when when we were doing a lot of branded content for companies, I would send a YouTube link out. And this is 10 years ago um, as a a preview. And they would receive the link. And then the next day we'd say, OK, go ahead and watch. Here's a new version. And they'd keep looking at it and they'd say, well, Matt, I'm, I'm watching it. You've not made any changes. And I'm like, well, what link are you using? So the, the ability of being able to remove that link or uh, set it to expire automatically within a day is actually a, a really critical feature. And then um, in the near future, and I'm talking within the next month or two, we're going to be allowing commenting for those links as well. So it's the ability of being able to have a decision maker that doesn't have an Altian account receives a link. They have their email attached to it or their name attached to it. So when they write comments in that video, um, those comments would end up showing up in your NLE, whether it's Premiere or Final Cut, potentially down the road DaVinci. Uh, and and um, you know, again, you're you're streamlining that entire production process without forcing people to have Altian accounts. Good the next sky. question. This guy had a follow up, I think. Yeah,
5: I just uh, the, uh, the annotation of your your decision maker. It you say is that a part of the pro-
7: process currently, or is that in the future? So pr- currently, uh, if anyone wanted to make comments uh, or annotations to something, they would have to have an altian account um, in in order to do that. And a lot of that is just around security and auditing processes. So when when that sh- that comment shows up within again your NLE, it'll say you know. Bob commented at this time, this, this, this comment. So, um, so it kind of, we want that because again, as a former editor, I don't want 50 comments out there and I don't know who made the comment. Uh, I think that's just, that's just as valuable information as the comment itself, because if I have to trace it back and say, well, I don't know what you mean by blue dot, uh, and there's a hundred blue dots on the screen. Um, then, then you know, it's sort of irrelevant to me as data. Uh, and have you
0: looked at, uh, or, or actually, have you managed a, a link being a container that you put, you keep on changing the movie? So for reviews, one of the things that we do uh, is we have a, a, we'll give a client, a producer, or a you know, a, 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 you know, a folder. There's one link. They don't have to think about it. But as we do updates, they're getting the same link. And we do this inside of frame. You know, this is what we use right now is currently is frame for those kinds of things. And and we we throw those in so that they're always getting the same link, but it's a different
7: video as it gets updated. Is that is that a concept that that you guys are? Well, well, first off, I I think for non Adobe users uh, to then have to go get Adobe subscription for frame, uh, it, it becomes a little bit difficult. Um, so it's, it's, it's great not, that there's other I'm services that are popping up out there. Definitely
0: um, that there's other services. I'm saying that's, I'm just giving a point of reference. Uh, for sure, for sure. It's yeah, the no, thing I, for us to use, but, but it's the, th- but I'm saying that behavior is something that's super useful for us that someone doesn't have to find a, a, we can keep on giving them version five, version six, version seven, and we're not sending them a new link. We're just sending them. This is the, uh, this is the place that you go to look at the thing.
7: Yeah. Check out what we have at NAB. Excellent. Excellent.
0: All right. Next question. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Next oh. Doesn't matter who says it. Next question. <laughs> next question is from Alex Forty Goldner. Uh, and Alex asks, for when you are dealing with comments about a relatively short asset, a motion graphic overlay, for example, in a long timeline, are you able to include the relevant time code within the asset with the comment? Yes. Yes. Well, that's pretty definitive.
7: It shows up right away.
0: <laughs> okay, perfect. Uh, yeah. Uh, next question is from from Douglas Carmichael, and he says, "Could you see your product scaling to the level of a major studio film or similar?"
7: I I think you know as a founder of a company that would be an incredible moment. Um, I I you know I've always I always said from the beginning. I remember I was with a colleague of mine in San Francisco probably two years ago. It was right, right after sort of things started opening up again, and we kind of had this moment of looking at each other, being like, "What you know? How incredible is it that we're able to do what we're doing?" And the thing that I get most excited about is hearing from users of what they produced and what we were able to help them produce. And I'm excited for the you know the commercial that people are talking about, and we know that Altion helped produce that commercial. Um, but I think it's always important to focus back on our roots, which is the 99% of the world that's been very underserved to date. And you know, it's it's always the sort of kiss of death for a product when they start getting in with a major enterprise client, because a lot of that uh, comes, you know, there comes some some fame to it and and other uh, sort of um, elements. But really, when it comes down to it that enterprise client is probably sucking you down and asking you for a million different um, changes and fixes and attention on them uh, and, and pulling you away from the individual users. But I think what we're seeing, especially with even the last Oscars, how many uh, of these movies were produced by very scaled down teams because of COVID. And uh, you know, you're able to produce in a very unique way today using the technology that we have at our disposal so uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past us to 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 be able to be part of a major motion picture at some point I do
0: think it, it does seem like the the elections are going to be a big deal for for you mostly because I think that there's just such a amount you're you're mentioning that in the collaborative nature of, of of campaigns, of needing to, especially national campaigns, to uh, be able to aggregate huge amounts of content from all over the all over the United States, at least, uh, seems like a real big opportunity there.
7: Yeah. And I, I think also just coming from my news background, I mean, I, I covered campaigns and I've covered many news events that happened in the world. So I understand what it takes to do quick turn production. And I understand what it takes to have many players involved all collaborating in very harsh environments, quite frankly. Um, But when it comes down to our app, for instance, for an embed that's that's covering a campaign trail that's by themselves, uh, we know they're probably going to shoot on iPhone at this point, or a phone, let's just put it that way. Uh, So if you're shooting on iPhone and you have our native app Uh, running on the phone and you're able to upload that content directly to your editor somewhere in the world immediately, that becomes a really streamlined process that you don't have to think about what you're doing from the technology side. So you're able to go out and cover the news and really focus on the story that you're trying to tell without being bogged down by many technical decisions along the way. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh, And Next question is from Alex Forty-Golner in London. And uh, Alex asks, uh, what do you see is the future of object, object-oriented media where productions are distributed as clouds of media clips plus presentation metadata, such as multiple timelines?
7: Yeah, I mean, I think that comes down to a little bit of our item structure and making sure that everything's in a container. Uh, you know, keeping even even right now, I'm on a, um, I'm on a group inside Simpty and it's talking about lens metadata. And one of the really cool, geeky things that I get in that is being able to retain uh, lens metadata inside of our platform that's also attached to the clip. So if I'm a VFX artist, instead of trying to figure out and gauge, well, did they, uh, you know, change the exposure here, or what was the focal point uh, of of the rack focus while they were, you know, chasing somebody down the street, and it's and somebody is spending a month to try and figure out those key points. Um, being able to catalog that in the camera by the half frame, and then bring that metadata into Altion as a sidecar file within the item structure, and then when you go out to your VFX artist and they see this this shot. Again, it's being edited on a standard editing platform. Uh, Somebody else is taking that same file and bringing it into a VFX uh, machine, and they're able to drag that sidecar file on top of it. You no longer have months of trying to figure out where did these various events happen within the lens? And then also lens curvature, right? Because I know the serial number of that lens, and I know what model the lens was, I can apply a curvature uh, to that visual effect shot that I'm producing all because of the data that's contained within this item structure
0: my my first uh, experience with that was i i worked on star wars episode 1 we were getting camera file camera reports uh from the from the uh from the set at leaveston and, and we we're like this is not a 35 millimeter lens yeah <laughs> yeah so we've got we've come a long way but you were just like there's some piece of paper that someone wrote while they were rushed they were rushing around and they just wrote uh this and and uh, and so yeah getting all that metadata to to follow the the follow the clip
7: is usually the biggest the biggest problem yeah uh, it's about I 20 minutes that, to oh go ahead matt finish up your answer yeah i mean just just one more thing on metadata you know one of our other big initiatives for the company is blockchain and i know that that's sort of a dirty world in the world that we live in today and you know people are very confused about a lot of the aspects to it but i've, I've never swayed away from it i'm i'm still very um cognizant of of the good and the bad that has happened over the last couple of years but largely when you think about metadata um putting metadata on a blockchain and locking it in and having a proper provenance of that data source so that let's say um you know this is being shot today but somebody can go and change the metadata and say it was shot last week uh, that's very easy in a lot of digital asset management systems. But being able to know that there's a file attached with metadata and it can't be altered, but it can be added to, right? We, we want to add to metadata, but knowing that there's that provenance there and being able to track it over time to say, hey, was this really shot last week or was it shot today? Um, you know, that also goes in line with camera sidecar metadata and and everything else that we're talking about here so that at no point in the production process can that be altered. Yeah, it seems like uh, that's important
0: for filmmaking, but it, it it's also really important for news gathering and everything else. Of being, I mean, one of the problems that a lot of us are talking about a lot is how do you know what's real anymore? And you know that may not be the only way to do it, but how do you know that? But with the blockchain, to your point, you could say, you know, this is, we know that it was shot with this camera with Potentially with this person in this look, you know, like it's when that stuff gets bound to it, it's following that that item around and you would know when it was
7: if that was broken. Even down to the child layer. Right. So even if you have, uh, let's say, 700 cuts inside of a a final mastered uh, video that you're putting out for air, being able to know that all of the sub elements within there we're also verified. Uh, that's that's part of a lot of what the tracking that we're yeah. helping our users do and, and that we're, we're still you know formulating it ourselves. And I think that even user groups like what you guys are doing is so important because we gain a lot of knowledge from this. And I'm excited to talk to people at NAB as I did last year because we learned a lot at NAB last year. There was a lot of validation to our product, but there was a lot of learning that we took out of that in focusing really on what the product needed to be uh, in order to be successful in the future. And, and we'll continue to evolve like that. I mean, I, I think that there's no software product that would ever uh, just stop uh, innovating. And if, if they do, we probably don't hear about them anymore.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I, I think a lot about the, um, the, when you were talking about that, I hadn't really thought through that, but even just down to copyright, you know, I think that there's a, that the blockchain is a really interesting possible replacement for cop- copyright in some cases where I've, it's much. It could be potentially much more nuanced. You know, you can set the contract of what the usage of this of this file is, and it's not limited to the basic copyright solutions that are out there. It says, well, you can use it for this. It's it's a little bit like the the GNU licenses that you can use. You know, there's all these different versions of these that um, that are, that are put Larry Lessig put together. Um, but the but I think that yeah,
7: you could theoretically add those right to the to the blockchain. So we, we launched uh, with Opera Crypto Browser about a month or two ago. And the idea behind it was we're actually integrated within the browser. So they they have an Altion NFT minting platform. It's called Launchpad directly within the browser. So you click on it, you see us right there. And my whole thought process on that was to really um, get it accessible to people so that you didn't have to go through lots of technical problems. In order to mint an NFT, uh, it's still a little bit cludgy. Uh, it's 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 it hasn't been cleaned up, if you will. And my belief is, ten years ago or fifteen years ago, I used to go to a drugstore or a film lab and say, "Here's my film reel. Uh, I'll pay you ten dollars to develop it, and you'll give me physical prints back." And I owned those prints. They were they were mine. Today, we're in a world where everyone's uploading content to social media platforms and they don't have that ownership anymore. Those that digital rights has been, you know, it's gone. And, and, you know, you guys were talking about EULA's earlier with uh, some of the other uh, companies that exist out there. And um, I don't think anyone has really read the full length of the description of what these social media platforms are able to do with your content and what ownership rights you have. So for me, convincing people or exposing this world of nfts not in the sense of i'm going to mint something and they'll make a million dollars off of it because it's just silly funny money at this point Um, but i'm minting something because it's truly mine and i want to own that and if i want to share a picture of you know me on vacation with my friends i might mint it as an nft But I still own that that image. It's not owned by, uh, again, another social media platform.
0: Now, have we gotten to the point where gas prices have gone down to where we can mint things for our own personal? For sure.
7: For sure. Yeah. And I think that the Ethereum merge that happened last year really helped a lot of that.
0: So we're getting to a reasonable price i think that is and it's is it all moved to proof of stake is that the
7: is that what's made the? yeah i mean and and we're down to dollars at this point you know it's it's like a dollar or two to mint uh an nft depending on obviously some of the other parameters but we've seen that within our our platform but there are other blockchains that exist out there that you know there's no gas fees and, and and such but um we're we're just supporting ethereum at the moment for our nft minting platform But it is also something that we're looking at doing as part of our publisher within Altion is being able to mint out or um, publish things on blockchain uh, down the road.
0: Next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. And Douglas asks, uh, Tom Cruise is, uh, oh, sorry, I I jumped questions. Next question is from Harshid Traviti uh, from Daytona Beach, Florida. And Harshid asks, uh, what type of accessibility could be found in your product as far as for those who might be using a screen reader or magnification? Could this product be uh, for them, especially for those who might record with various tools and uh, to get something correct?
7: Well, first of all, hi from uh, Florida, my home state. But uh, yeah, I I think that we're actually working with somebody um, at Apple right now who focuses specifically on uh, people with disabilities and um, making sure that we're focusing on anything uh, for either hearing impaired or, or slightly visually impaired. So there's a lot of elements into the product that we're trying to bake in over uh, the next couple months that really help out with, with people with disabilities. Um, so for sure, um, you know keep, keep tuned on that one. Um, I, I would say that you'll see some updates coming out in the next couple months with, with regard to that. Uh, When we add speech to text later on uh, this year for natural language processing, um, that'll also help out with being able to see a lot of the, you know, almost a closed caption, if you will, uh, that's being generated. Um, That will also help out some of the editing process there, I I would say.
0: Next, Next question. Part. Next question is sorry.
7: Next question is from uh, Douglas
0: Carmichael, and he said Tom Cruise is shooting part of the latest Mission Impossible aboard the U.S. Navy aircraft carrier. How would your product handle workflows in environments where intermittent or poor internet connections?
7: Really hard. Uh, you know, I, I think that it's it's only as good as your internet connection. Uh, we had one user uh, a month ago that was was really not having a good experience, and we finally asked them to do a speed test on their internet. And they're like, well, we have an idea uh, ISDN line, <laughs> and it was like, you know, kilobytes uh, yeah. upload and download. So, um, look, it's not for everyone, uh, and and you know, I think that if if you really look at the majority of people right now that are working at home over the last two years, they've they've been able to upgrade their internet. We're seeing a lot of um, aspects, whether it's Starlink. So, we have a, a documentary that's shooting right now, and they have a Starlink set up uh at their base camp so they're using that for uploads uh and it's it's working out well for them um again it's it's you're only as good as your your last mile right and and if if the internet connection is going out constantly uh nothing nothing right now that we can do uh no sorcery or 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 magic that that we've got baked in that uh can help uh without uh proper connectivity
2: You know, I don't know if you saw the story recently, but there was a guy who got stuck in the snow in his car and he was worried about safety and he texted his location on his phone and then he attached his phone to a drone and flew it up until it connected to a cell tower that sent the message and he and another car that had gotten stuck got out of it by virtue of that brilliant piece of thinking. Is there ever a potential that we might have a store and forward kind of process where if you don't have a good connection right now that your device will hold on to your files until it gets a better connection and then connect it, upload?
7: Yeah, that's largely a lot of what our accelerator does. So the accelerator has that logic built into it. And um, again, it also has Aspera built into it. So it'll just keep trying and trying and trying uh, until you basically tell it, stop trying.
2: Perfect. Alex, next question.
7: Next question is from Alex4D
0: Golner in London. And Alex asks I suggest you add uh, the ability to uh, apply arbitrary Apple Motion 5 template to transcodes. We could then add any kind of overlays we want and process the video in ways that we want. Would that be possible?
7: I was with the compressor team on Monday. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very good. Okay noted uh, all right next question is from Roscoe Jones in Madison Indiana and uh, Roscoe asks you were recently the keynote speaker in Long Beach for student broadcasters uh, what was their response to Altion.io, and uh, what was the best question they asked
7: um the the best part about it was I was getting asked questions by students that were 13 14 15 years old that, rival any guys on this panel right now. And that, to me, was so cool. Uh, I mean, it was so cool because it really did bring me back to my roots of when I was in high school. Uh, i was i was I was that kid uh, that would would go into a news station and start looking at everything and asking the technical director, what does this do? What does this do? What does this do? Or I remember, being as nerdy as uh every i think it was every twice a year bnh would come out with their catalog and this was pre-internet keep in mind and i would flip every page and marker tech was another one that i was looking i always looked forward to and I, again i remember being 15 16 years old and it was like christmas morning when the bnh catalog came came in the mail and i could flip through and see everything was there um it was an incredible experience talking to them. Um, obviously, I, I I spoke as the keynote on the first night, so I didn't really have that uh, one-on-one interaction. But what was great about it is I was able to stay for another two days at the conference and really connect. So whether it was walking through the halls and people would stop me and and uh, you know say that my story sort of resonated with them, but then they would ask me some questions. That was great because i I loved being able to be accessible to them and show them you know sort of what they're what they're capable of and um i I think lastly on on this whole whole notion of things these are the future storytellers and i'm not saying that lightly i mean these are going to be the people that we're going to be watching their news broadcasts um or their content down the road uh and and i think that it was important to instill on them something that was instilled on me very early, which is integrity. And, and you know, what you're producing has a huge weight to it. And, you know, A, you can't lose, um, you know, people's people's trust in you. Uh, so you always have to retain that. And that was something that I was always cognizant of when I was reporting for NBC Network. But, but also, I think that they have such... Um, skewed viewpoints on a lot of things that are going on in the world just based on either fake news or being able to produce content just because it generates a lot of views, right? But because of that, they also have a huge responsibility. And that was one of the biggest things that I really tried to express to them while I was there is that this this responsibility is, is something to be taken seriously.
0: Nice. Next question. Next question is uh, from Ben Varna. Varna in uh, Rosemont, Illinois, and and Ben asks, would it be possible to integrate a Brightcove account with 10,000 plus 10,000 videos and would it be possible without using the Altion storage?
7: What was the what was the first part of that question it broke up?
0: To integrate uh, to what would be would it be possible to integrate a Brightcove account with over 10,000 videos and would it be possible without using the Altion storage? No. There you go. Next next, next question uh, is uh, from Courtney Gooden in Hollywood. And uh, Courtney asks When transcoding to proxies, uh, can it sync double system BWF uh, audio ISO files to video using timecode and maintain
7: the metadata through posts? Currently, we don't have that available. Um, so we largely have been working on making sure that the video just works. Um, so, so if you have video there, we do have a concept. Uh, it's, it's privately for us right now um, that we've been testing on relinking clips. And it also it also goes with a lot of other things that we have um, with potential camera to cloud workflows using like a deck, let's say. Uh, and, and Alex, you and I were both talking to John the other day about this. But um, again, thinking about um, relinking or attaching other elements to this item structure that we have, uh, certainly on our radar.
2: And it should be getting easier and easier inside NLEs to do sync clips or something equivalent where you're doing that marriage before you upload into the cloud.
7: Yeah, but I I would also argue if if your audio person is uploading separately from the video, that exists out there There Um, to be able to, to create that, that joint in the cloud. Um, that's something that we're, we're certainly really working closely on. But again, um, I think that we're going to succeed as the production world continues to adopt us, but believe in us, right? It takes a village genuinely. You only see, uh, products succeed over time because people really believed in them from the beginning. They wanted to see them work. They wanted to see them advance. Um, we can't advance without people coming into Altion signing up uh you know bearing with some of our our bumps and bruises that we might have a little bit along the way but you know no software company has been perfect and um you know we're really trying our hardest as a small team again not being a not being uh sort of funded by a major institution or enterprise uh you know we 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 are um, very lean on how we're approaching things but also it's very purposeful mindset of what's very important today for the majority of people that are out there in the majority of workflows.
0: Next, we have we, one more question. next question is from Mickey Makachor in uh, the Philippines. And Mickey asks, I am able to saturate my gigabit connection with frame.io. Would I be able to do the same with Altion? Where is Altion hosted?
7: 100%. Uh, well, when when we expand out globally in terms of our servers everywhere around the world, uh, I think that'll only get faster. But I would say that right now, you you should have no problems. We we've have people in India that work for us. And um, even from India, they're accessing our servers in Dallas from IBM on a minute-by-minute basis. And, and they're testing everything that we have. Uh, and it's very good performance for them.
2: Nice. Matt, this has been a fabulous chat. Thank you very much for coming in and letting us know what is going on with Altheum. Um we hope that you have continued success and I'm looking forward to learning more and more about your product as you go. Do you have any last words, anything you'd like to leave us with before we finish up
7: today? No, please, you know, stop by our booth at NAB, pull me aside, grab me if uh if you're you're there. Um you know, I love to make time for anyone that I can. Obviously, it's it's, you know, kind of craziness that's going to be going on, but um, more importantly, you know, try it out. There's free trials and, and you know, everyone can log in and it's unlimited time for that free trial. Your user account is always your user account. So uh, if you go from one place to another, to another, to another, or you're accessing multiple groups, you always get to retain your own personal user account. And that could be free for life if you really, if you play, it, play, it, play us right, if you will. Um, but, you know, we have various storage Tiers so online, nearline archives. So if you have a large archive, please by all means, uh, we have people that are using us right now because they're able to have the full UI structure of Altian in an archive process. So I think that's also something really important to point out. Um, but I, I can't thank you all enough for what you're doing for the community uh, because you know I listen to the to the show and and um, you know Bill, you've said a lot of really great things about us in the past as well. And, you know, I just, I really can't, uh, you know, say enough appreciation for what you guys are doing, not only for Altion, but also for the rest of the community.
2: Well, it takes a village, I agree with you 100%, and you are an exciting part of the growth of this village, and so we look forward to seeing what you're developing. I look forward to you at NAB and in the future. Um, Our next show, don't forget, Saturday, the class reunion. We've been here for three years, so definitely tune in tomorrow if you want to look back at some of where we've come from, Uh, and don't forget, NAB is coming up. It's going to be a big deal. Our office hours teams will be doing hours of live coverage from the show floor, as well as producing youtube shorts and doing all sorts of crazy things that we've never tried before that's part of what we are we're a test bed for technology to see how we can leverage this whole zoom thing we do every day Uh, we'll be on the floor at nab from april 16th through the 19th in some form or another show up here for the show in the morning and we'll tell you exactly what's going on every day last but certainly not least is our tremendous thank yous uh Everybody who is involved in the show, we want to say a profound thanks to our panelists, experts who come here every day to help people, our producers, you, the viewers who drive the show content with your questions and your votes on the questions. That's critical to how we do it. And the amazing behind the scenes crew. It's a global operation and we have a tremendous number of people who are coming together every single day to make office hours possible. So watch the credits. They're about to start right now. Thank you for watching Office Hours and we'll see
0: you all tomorrow. And a quick reminder that uh, Justine Ezrick will be on Gray Matter today. I, Justine, will be on Gray Matter today. Uh, the links are out there. You want to ask the questions early. Justine is going to tweet a link to, to the Gray Matter show. So uh, there's a couple million people that may. Can descend. you servers handle <laughs> Chris Chris tells me 500,000 is the most he can do. We're hoping we stay.
7: So just keep saying Altion, 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 Altion. Altion. Altion over and over. Hey guys, thanks so much.
2: Matt, thank you very much. Great job. We appreciate
5: you being thank here. Thank you, Matt.
7: Thanks, Matt. Take care all. <laughs>